Hello, this is Dr. Shiva. Welcome to our podcast, Get Educated or Be Enslaved. Episode 923, air date March 30th, 2021. Hello, everyone. It's uh, good evening, everyone, or good afternoon. It's 3.10 p.m. It's Dr. Shiva Adure. I'm going to be doing an interview, and the discussion in my interview is going to be why we need a systems science revolution. So we're going to really get deeper into what is system science and why we need a revolution for that. Let me uh, bring in Chris here. Chris, are you there? I'm here, Dr. Shiva. Yes, yeah. I am. So, so Chris, to the viewers, I put out there that, you know, we want to have a discussion on what I call why we need to take a systems approach, you know, be it to understanding uh, the immune system, uh, to understanding the, um, many things of the day, because what's happened is it's very, very easy to take advantage of particular working people in this country. And working people are essentially the ones at the end of the day, whether it's Republican or Democrat, left or right, who are being screwed, in my view. And so um, the big thing that, you know, my journey has brought me to, to, to really understand why we need to take a systems science approach. And a lot of people hear the word systems, but they don't really understand the, the, the magnitude or the depth of what that means. So um, I thought that's what we do. Yeah, sounds good. And uh, I just want to welcome you to our Mac Files audience tonight. And Dr. Shiva's uh, reputation follows him. You, you've seen him on a lot of the uh, videos out there regarding uh, health issues. And I'm really excited to have him on tonight uh, the first time on our show. And uh, we send you a southern welcome. And uh, we were talking beforehand. Uh, he's up in the northeast. I'm down south. And uh, it's always fun when he when the Southerners and the Yankees get together and have a discussion. So this should be fun today. And uh, and you're in Tennessee, on. right, Chris? What's that? You're in Tennessee? I live in Tennessee. You're in Knoxville. I sure do. I'm from Atlanta, Georgia, originally, but been here about 20 years now. So down there in the Bonsier State. Absolutely. Eastern part in the mountains. Okay. That's great. So where do, where do we want to start? I'm just going to go ahead and ask you, uh, Doctor, first of all, I do want you to do something for my audience here. If you would just take about five minutes and tell everybody who you are. There's some folks, most people know who you are, but there's some that don't. Tell them a little bit about your background and how you, because uh, you've got four degrees. I mean, you, you, you've been uh, tremendous uh, contributions to medicine and uh, other things. But tell everybody a little bit about Dr. Shiva, and, um, and then we'll go from there. Sure. Uh, by the way, uh, to everyone listening, Chris is from Tennessee. And um, look, I, I think my journey, in many ways, I like going to the South and people who come from very uh, salt of the earth community, because that's where I came from, Chris. You know, I came from two worlds which were salt of the earth. One is, um, you know, in South India. And I also grew up in a, a place called Bombay. But my grandparents were, so think about Bombay as New York in India in my formative years, and think about south india like deep 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 you know the hills of uh tennessee or deep mississippi right two very different worlds as you can imagine so my uh grandparents were actually poor village farmers uh from that part of the world you know they work you know 16 17 hours in the fields literally planting cotton and um and uh you know uh farmers you know coconut pickers right and uh but my m mom and dad were quite interesting. You know, India has a caste system, which some people may know about. And the caste system of India, basically, it basically institutionalizes elitism and racism and everything you can think about, right? Basically, it says if you're born at this in a particular family, the rest of your life is supposed to be um, 
what they called untouchables, you know, or like deplorables. Um, and you're supposed to basically do all the um, uh, work that others would not want to do. So my family is supposed to be coconut pickers, believe it or not. Now, the fact that my mom and my dad made it out of that is really a testament to their will and their grit and their determination. And so uh, we were very fortunate. I came to the United States in 1970. I was seven years old. And again, I grew up in very, you know, um, diverse working class towns, first in Patterson, New Jersey, predominantly all African-American, one of the poorest cities in the United States. And then a uh, place like Clifton and Persephone and the my parents kept moving to the better public education system. So in the last year, uh, the two, two, three years of my high school, we moved to a very wealthy town called Livingston, predominantly, um, you know, Jewish people, very nice people, but you know, it was a very elite town. I never felt at place there, it was very weird because I'd grown up in all these working class towns uh, prior to that. Um, and it was 4,000 kids in my high school. You can imagine Chris, a thousand wow. in my graduating class. And I graduated, I think uh, first, from the academic and then second uh, when they combine the academic and, and the uh, math and humanities, okay? So that was quite hard for people there to accept because we were the only two, me and my sister were the only two dark-skinned kids there who had come from these working class towns, you know? So it was an interesting period. That was in the 70s when the public education system wasn't completely destroyed yet. And, but by the time I was 14, I started working full-time at a medical school as a research fellow, I was very motivated. By the way, I wasn't just a math or science guy, played baseball, played um, soccer, you know, had a landscaping business, you know, a lot of everyday people taught me a lot about how to really uh, take care of myself. So I, I, I learned programming, was lawn mowing, right? Painting homes. Um, but by the time I was 14, I started working full time as a uh, software engineer, as a research fellow at what is now known as Rutgers Medical School in the heart of Newark, New Jersey which is one of the poorest cities still in the United States. A lot of crime. People, most people still are afraid to go into Newark. Um, but my parents were very cool. They supported me. Uh, I had a mentor there and my public school teachers changed the rules so I could go in the middle of high school and, and go work. And the job I had was two jobs. One was in medicine because I was deeply interested in medicine because growing up in India, my grandmother was actually a village healer. She was a shaman in the village. She could observe your face, figure out what's going on in your body. She practiced a traditional system of Indian medicine. You know, she didn't have any degrees, but I saw her heal a lot of people using um, what we today call precision medicine, the right medicine for the right person at the right time. So even though two people may have the exact same ailments, they didn't all get the same formulations, right? Um, you had to tune it to their particular state in life and et cetera. Um, so I was always interested in medicine and I was good at math and computing and here, at that medical school, I got my first job looking at um, why babies were dying in their sleep. It was called SID, Sudden Infant Death Syndrome. We had some of the best sleep data where we could watch baby sleep patterns. And I wrote mathematical algorithm to see if I could see a certain pattern, which would mean they stopped breathing. That's called an apnea. Um, while I was there, I also got another opportunity to create the world's first email system. I was asked to convert the old fashioned inner office mail system. Anyone over the age of 40 will remember that you know, in those days, there wasn't, you know, the internet accessible to everyone. There wasn't um, cell phones, right? Uh, how did offices communicate? What in those early offices or in those offices, for that matter, from that office all the way to the office of the president, there's something called the inner office mail system. And the inner office mail system was really the heartbeat of communications of every organization. And so if you had every office, every office had a secretary, always a woman. 
And that woman on her desktop, not a real desktop, had something called a typewriter. She had, you know, paper. She had a thing called an inbox, a physical metal or wooden box, an outbox, a drafts box, big file folder. She had a trash can underneath, paper clips, right? Um, and she would be the center of operations for communication. So the boss would come to her and dictate a letter. She would type it up and put it into the drafts folder. That's what you know I'd see my boss do. And then the and then he would redline it. She would type it up again. And then if they were going to hire someone, they would maybe attach that person's resume with a little paper clip, right? If they had to also let the hiring manager know, they would create a CC, a carbon copy, right? Sometimes if they had to let their supervisor know or a blind carbon copy. So this was a, a very uh, interesting system, which was how offices communicated. And these things called a memo were put into something called the inner office mail envelope, right? And they were and they were sent around the office and then people would respond back to them. And this was how communication, this was the social media of the time, right? No one had ever converted this to the electronic form. There were simple methods of text messaging, like the telegraph, you know, sending short messages, computer right. to computer. But I was asked to convert that entire system into the electronic form. And I wrote 50,000 lines of code to do that in Fortran, in 8K of memory, I had to write all these memory management tools and I named that system email. I was I coined the term, not only did I write all the code to capture every one of these features, named it email. And when I came to MIT in 1981 on September, on the front page of MIT, they featured three students and I was one of them out of the 1040. So clearly MIT thought this was pretty interesting innovation. And that winter in December, I went to the president of MIT's house who was a science advisor to Ronald Reagan and he said, Shiva, you should patent, you should copyright your system. Because he said, patents, the Supreme Court still did not know what software was. They wouldn't allow software patents. They weren't recognizing them. And in 1980, the Computer Act of 1980 was passed, which allowed you to use copyright law to protect software inventions. So, you know, my parents weren't like Bill Gates' parents' lawyers. They weren't wealthy. Uh, I had to write away for the copyright forms. You had to pay like 10 bucks, which is, which is a lot of money for a kid, you know. Uh, and I, I, I remember I got a couple of them and I filled in all of it and you had to send in all your code. And it wasn't just simply putting a C with a circle. A lot of, uh, uh, people who are ignorant think that's all it is. In those days, you had to send in all your code and back and forth. And on August 30th, 1982, an American kid was issued the first United States copyright for email for, and recognizing me officially as the inventor of email. So that's what I did before I came to MIT. That's what's important to remember. The innovation of email did not occur at MIT, did not occur at Harvard, did not occur by a Harvard dropout, did not occur by a nerd, right? Looking like a nerd, it occurred by a kid who was motivated, not because he wanted to make money, because just the thrill of him being given the opportunity to work in this medical college. And by the way, a 14 year old kid is the one who invented TV, Philo Farnsworth, very similar surroundings to mine in Franklin, Idaho, very humble surroundings and RCA stole it from him. But so I had done, so I, the two important things I bring about that is I had learned about systems long before I came to MIT. Email is a system. It, I, it's, it's not the simple exchange of text messages. And I never even wanted credit for it, Chris. I went in and out of MIT, did a bunch of degrees, uh, started seven companies. It was only um, 2011 when my mom was dying of a horrible disease called pulmonary fibrosis that all of this went in uh, Time Magazine came and looked at a suitcase that my mom had saved with all the artifacts. And they said, Jesus, you, you invented email. They wrote an article 
um, everything was fine. And then uh, three months later, the Smithsonian uh, received all my papers. It was a great honor. It was a, it was a great, you know, the American dream coming true. And it went into the Smithsonian and on August, February 16th, uh, 2012. And what should have been celebrated as an American dream, you can see the liberal elites, the racist liberal elites who had written that, you know, during those 33 years where I didn't promote it, there's like a new skull was found in Africa. It freaked him out. In fact, the Washington Post wrote a great article. Dr. Shivaigre honored as the inventor of email. And these people attacked the writer. They said, this guy is a fraud. He's at all sorts of horrible names because the thought of email being invented outside of the military industrial academic complex of the elites is what really bothered them. Because during those 33 years, they had rewritten the history. They had conflated the at symbol and a, and a guy who looked like a crazy nerd who didn't invent email, where he just simply added text to the bottom of a file. They conflated that because a company called Raytheon wanted to take credit for that because they were entering the cybersecurity market. So it was quite fascinating. You see overnight, all my four degrees don't mean anything. You see the vicious attacks. It took me four years to find a lawyer to sue Gawker Media, if you remember them, the clickbaiting company to sue them. And, uh, you know, we won. I won a, a large settlement. They were forced to take down their three defamatory articles. But the racists at Wikipedia, which is what they are, you see the, the liberal elites are the biggest racists. They can't, they don't want to accept. It's, it's racism, not just against skin color. It's racism against, uh, it's a caste system. They do not, when I was at MIT, I won every award there. The Fulbrights, uh, I was featured for inventing many things because I was a dark skinned guy playing, supporting MIT's, you know, the liberal vision of inclusivity and diversity. So I was, I was their golden boy, right? But the day when my stuff went to the Smithsonian uh, and thousands of calls came to MIT and I was teaching one of the most popular electives saying, this guy's a liar, you know, people could not stand the fact that I had done this before MIT, you see? And that's the real issue here. The re but the important thing is that experience taught me about systems. I had learned about the caste system, you know, and as a kid, I was studying every political theory. I, I studied left wing, right wing, Thomas Paine, you know, Russian revolution, Cuban revolution. I was very interested in understanding why was there this caste system in the world? Um, I was very interested in also understanding medicine. You know, how was my grandmother able to heal people without any degrees. So that was my long journey to a systems approach to pretty much everything. And today what we've created, um, you know, besides the invention of email, we'll talk about the other things. The greatest invention that I am working on right now is Cytosol, but more importantly, a platform I've created for education, for building community and for local activism. And that's called the VA Shiva, vashiva.com platform for truth, freedom and health. And we're teaching people is, we're teaching people to go beyond the WWF wrestling of left and right, Republican and Democrat, Trump and Bernie, whatever whatever the flavor is today, is people need to understand that when you look at the arc of American history or world history, the working people are the ones who've always been screwed. In fact, working people meaning the true worker, not the Bernie Sanders definition of worker, right? Or not the definition of people who wanna talk about the blue collar worker and take advantage of. I'm talking about working people who basically have skills, produce stuff, the entrepreneurs, small business people, the 25 million small business people all were screwed in the last four years with this lockdown. So the working people's movement in the early thirties is what made America truly great. And since working people independently rose up independent of both political parties, 
you know, that's where the elites have had a big problem. So they, the left and the right have worked together to crush the working person. The right, every time working people rise up, they call them communists. And therefore the left takes advantage of that and runs top-down unions. And so since 1971, you know, both the left and the right have colluded against the American worker. For that matter, the world working class, you know? And you can see that right now, we've shut down the entire economy to stop small businesses Why Amazon and Walmart and all these guys were allowed to double their wealth. And that's what I think we should really talk about because they actively want to not to teach people a systems approach to looking at the world, which is what I'm committed to educating. So on our platform, every, like last night, it was a four hour conversation. I educate people. I take all those 50 years of knowledge, all those 33 years at MIT, and I distill it to a three hour course where I teach people, you know, what is a system? Like, what is a system? And how can people understand, you know, how to learn about systems? So they learn this very deep knowledge about systems thinking um, in one in one hour. And then we use that root of those principles to teach them, or that knowledge to teach them three principles, which is the interconnection between freedom, truth, and health, truth, freedom, and health. What's happened, Chris, is they have artificially divided people. So the people who are into freedom are quote unquote rednecks, right? The second amendment people and the free speech people. And then the people who are into truth and innovation must be nerds. And then the two people who are into health must be like the earthy, crunchy granola people and the yoga Nazis, right? So we have these three worlds separated. Some are supposedly left. The people who are into eating well and organic food. The people on the right are people who are into their guns and their first amendment, right? And then the nerds sort of can go either way, right? But our, when you take a systems approach, what you learn is that without freedom, you don't have the framework to practice a scientific method to get to truth. And without truth, we are never gonna get to understand what the real problem, the real solution is, which means we're never gonna identify the health for our economy individually. And without, with weak economies and weak people, you can't fight for freedom. First principle, truth, freedom, and health. The second principle is, we got to go back um, and nothing is going to happen overnight. Now we have to build a bottoms up movement and it's going to be taking every issue that we have issues with taking a systems approach, understanding what the real problem is. So if you look at climate change, it's not CO2, the issues is we want to lower pollution, but that's not what the Paris Accords did. Fake problem, fake solution. Okay. So what does the Paris Accords do? It actually allows China. It incentivizes China to double their pollution from 11 billion metric tons of carbon to 22 billion. I did a whole video on this explaining this. So you have this phenomenon now on every problem in the world, it gets split into pro and anti, left and right, Republican and Democrat, and the working people who work very hard, they're basically brainwashed to just watch entertainment. Instead of watching Hollywood, okay, they watch one guy yelling at another. And that's what the establishment wants. They do not want us to take any problem and take a systems approach. A systems approach goes beyond left and right. So we need to build a bottoms of movement. The third thing we teach the principle is the not so obvious establishment, which are the people who talk a good game, Chris. And what they actually do, the game that they talk is really not about solving a problem. It's about profiting from creating this dialectic of left and right, pro and anti. So, you know, in the, you know when we talk about the election, clean elections issue, you know, in Massachusetts, we're the ones who found from a systems approach, the real issue, which is the fact that the electronic voting machines 
are certified by red-blooded Americans, not forget the Chinese, okay? This is a distraction. Red-blooded Americans, Democrats and Republican, state election directors certify electronic voting machines to allow the votes to have computer algorithms which can multiply votes. And the unfortunate thing is Trump didn't even want to talk about that, okay? The Republicans don't want to still talk about that. They distract it to mail-in ballots or voter IDs. Yeah, they're important things, but the real issues, even if you had that, and then the Democrats talk about voter suppression, like what's going on in Georgia, right? And Brian Kemp doesn't care about either thing, so they put him as the enemy, and then he acts like though he's for, he's for, you know what I'm saying? They create a fake dialectic. They never get to the real issue, which is the fact that we're certifying voting machines which have computer algorithms. And meanwhile, they both raise money. The RNC and the Trump campaign raised $300 million. Look, I supported Trump. I paid, you know, I gave him money. I was, but I was very disappointed at the fact that the people surrounding him uh, and him at the end didn't really want to go after the real issue because both Democrats and Republicans have been profiting from selections, not elections. So that's an example of a systems approach. You take this whole issue with pro-vax, anti-vax, right? Over here, your big farm, and then over here, your people, you know, the wealthy moms who are supporting people like Kennedy, who basically took him for a ride, okay? He endorsed Hillary Clinton three times. But the real issue when you go to the issue is, when you take a systems approach there, you find that the real issue is not a pro or anti-vax. The real issue is boosting the immune system. And think about what's going on right now. We're basically telling people you can be, you can get inoculated, but you can be 2,000 pounds overweight and you can travel, that'll be fine. But if you, you could be an Olympic athlete and you choose that maybe you don't want to get inoculated, right? You have to stay in your home. You can't travel anywhere. So the, and the reason this dialectic has occurred is both parties profit from keeping this pro anti thing going. And they perpetuate it. They raise money. They have their nonprofits. You take something like cancer. Cancer, I don't see it solved, right? right? What you do see is you see a lot of nonprofits who've made a ton of money, like the Breast Cancer Foundation. I think nine, $2 billion foundation, $1.2 billion foundation, nonprofit. Their CEO just took a $9 million parachute, right? So what I'm trying to say is that's why I believe we need a systems science revolution. We need a revolution in science because 90% of the academics today in academia do not practice science anymore. What they practice is uh, scientific consensus, okay? Scientific consensus means um, you don't care about the truth, you watch which way the wind blows. And if 90% of the people say, oh, the, um, you know, the sun goes around the earth, you go, yep, the sun goes around the earth. And that's not science. Sci the scientific method says, you ask a problem, you debate it out, you have you know m major debates, you disagree, agree to disagree, whatever, you go back and forth in a vigorous environment of debate. And then out of that, you, you know, out of that experience, you then get to truth, right? Or you may find out that you were completely wrong, the guess that you made about something. But we, so as long as you can have freedom, you can practice the scientific method. But if you don't have freedom, you cannot practice a scientific method. You end up getting to scientific consensus. And what's happened today in academia is most academics, and, and this is not just me saying this, are mediocre at best, even at the major institutions. Starting around in the mid to late 70s, 
They got rid of all the radicals in academia. Anyone who really wanted to ask tough questions, they were thrown out. So who remains in academia now are the lemmings, people who are salespeople. Um, so if you look at the way the NIH and the NIAID, where Francis Collins and Fauci are, they control the lives in the biological sciences of pretty much 99% of scientists. So if you don't fall in line, you're out of work. So most scientists are not, they don't have a, a, a spine, okay? They, most of them um, follow the leader, right? Follow where the money is. So this is why we've gotten to where we are, because at every level of science now, every level, it's become the oldest profession, you know, and we know what that is from the Bible, right? The oldest profession. That's what science has become. So on any issue right now, the politicians go to the scientists, right? And John Kennedy, I think in 1961 or 62, he gave a speech um, at the National Academy of Sciences, and he said something interesting. He said, you know, this is a problem with democracy we have now. The problems of the world have become, I'm paraphrasing what he said, have become very complicated, right? We have major problems, right? Like how do you, how do you solve nuclear prol proliferation? How do you solve climate, right? Or is there a climate issue, right? Well, whatever it is, transportation, healthcare. So he said, you have these very complex problems. The politician who gets elected into office, he can't even comprehend these problems, but he gets elected by hundreds of millions of people, right? Democracy. And then to make his decision, he goes to around 10 people, scientists, to ask them, well, what should I do? And he, and he said that the problem of democracy now is you have a president relying on a small set of people. And you saw this with Trump, right? Two people. And trying to, and because, you know, unlike, look, the what, very interesting thing was the founders of this country were scientists, engineers, a lot of them lawyers, but they, they came out of the enlightenment where they studied science and engineering and chemistry. Like Washington actually knew what sine and cosine was. I don't know if Trump knows that. I don't know if Biden knows that. Okay. Do they, you know, they actually knew how to, you know, solve things. I mean, they actually knew science. So, and by the way, in China, just to give a very interesting point, do you know in China who their celebrities are, Chris? I was a scientist. <laughs> yeah, so in China, they don't have pictures of, um, like, I don't know, Marilyn Monroe on a billboard, right? And American scientists will go to China, and they'll, you know, a famous scientist where no one even knows him here. But when they show up to China, there will be miles of people waiting for that guy's autograph. That's interesting. Yeah, it's very interesting. And the, and the Chinese Communist Party, for example, is made up of engineers and scientists. So these guys are planning a thousand years ahead, okay? So meanwhile, in America, we have lawyers and lawyers and lawyers and lawyers and liars, right? And these guys do not have any idea of the fundamentals of what's going on, on any issue. So they go to these scientists to get their help, but those scientists today, because academia starting in 1971, uh, with the passage of the Mansfield Amendment, became highly political. And people should go research this. So today, science, unlike pre-1940s, was very vibrant, very competitive. If you were a really great scientist, you got uh, you got given money and you could do a lot of great stuff, right? Now it's clawing to mediocrity. That's what we have in science. So because most of these scientists who claw to mediocrity, they're not really great. They're more good salespeople. 
you have them saying yes to everything because they need to get their money. You know, MIT gets 20 to $40 million on climate change. You put anything on climate change, you'll get funded. Cockroaches call climate change, you'll get funded, anything. So that's what science has become. It's become pay to play. So this is a fundamental reason why we can't trust the scientific community anymore. We have to create what I call citizen science. And part of what we're doing in our platform is doing that. So first we wanna educate people, then in a systems approach, and which means beyond left and right, then we, we're, you know, we're going beyond big tech. I run my own data centers here. So people on VA Shiva get to create their own forums. They get to have discussions. We created our own version of Facebook. And I don't want to do this for the rest of the world. My goal is to train around 50,000 people in 2021, 50,000 truth, freedom and health warriors, like Jedi Knights. And these people need to understand, or, or at least the people going through our training, get it, that it's not going to be Trump. It's not going to be Bernie. It's not going to be Biden. It's not going to be the next doofus Pompeo, whoever the hell it is, right? It's going to be the American working class, the world working class. That's yeah, that's, that's where we need to go, Chris. We need a systems science. We don't just need it. We don't just need a revolution. We don't just need a scientific revolution. We we need a system science revolution. It's a new term. System science means people have to understand there is a physics, there is a science to understanding everything in the universe, whether it be your body, whether it be a political system, whether it be this computer. So, um, and that is the science that you know, my life has brought me to do to organize in a way that I can teach everyone. So they don't, you know, if they can't afford MIT, a working person works hard. That's what I want to educate people on. And if they learn that, they can see, oh, I get it. This is a real issue with climate change, or this is a real issue with medical freedom. This is a real issue with masks, or this is a real issue with the healthcare system. Without that, they're going to just get drawn into some fight. And if they want to do that, great. But just recognize that, uh, that's just entertainment. Tucker Carlson is entertainment. You know, he puts on a face. He watches which way the wind blows. You know, he watches which way his ratings are going to go. Same with Sean Hannity. Same with Cuomo, CNN and Fox. They are not principled and they don't need to be. They're making, you know, a couple million bucks more every year. They don't care about the working class. I agree. So. Okay. I got, I have a question for you. Uh, what you just described to me, it makes a lot of sense in the vein of why this uh, Dr. Fudge got so much power. Because uh, Dr. Sheba, it seemed like he became the face, literally, uh, and first, uh, the woman, uh, Mrs. Birch, became the two faces that we have witnessed this last year uh, on this science. And there's been no other voices. They every And we talked about it a little bit before the show. They've been censoring so badly out here any attempt to question their wisdom. I put wisdom in quotes. Now, I don't look at it as wisdom. I, I look at it exactly what, you're, what you described. It's been all pandering uh, to their, their audience and the money and, and whoever's behind them. How did they get such power, in your opinion? Overall? Yeah, that is, a, that is a great, great question. That is an awesome question. So I just want to let my viewers here know. Um, so what Chris is asking is how did these people like a Bricks or a Fauci or uh, they're bureaucrats. If you notice something, if you notice um, something very interesting, you'll notice something very interesting. You'll notice that presidents come and go, right? That's correct. We think president is the most powerful person in the world, right? They said, oh, the president has so much power. I would argue that's not true. Presidents come and go. 
but a guy like a Fauci, a bureaucrat. Uh, you, you ever watch that movie uh, Office Office uh, Space? You ever watch that movie? Remember that guy in the basement, the stapler, the, sta the stapler guy? He's just there forever. He's there forever. And I think he's the one who burns down the place in the movie, right? Right. Well, it's an interesting thing because the people who are the bureaucrats who stay there forever are the most powerful people. Very true. Like even in in the old Russian bureaucracy, there was some little clerk who was just there. And he controlled everything. Right. You right. thought the 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 premier, the prime minister, you know, was but it was some. So that's what a Fauci and a Bricks represent. These people are politicians. Henry Kissinger said, if you want to learn politics, go work in academia. OK, the acad academicians are the worst politicians because they fight for nothing. OK. And remember, the Wall Street banker wants to make a lot of money. OK. He wants profit. What does an academic want? You ever thought about what an academic wants? They're making maybe 80K, 50, 70K, right? They want power. They want control. They want control over narratives. So imagine, and the way this works is like this. <coughs> you get your PhD. This was a model, right? And if you wanted to go into academia, you have literally seven years to become a tenured professor. I don't know if you know this, how this works. And everyone should listen. This is, this is how the academic machinery works. So let's say, Chris, you got your PhD and you got a, uh, you know, your uh, associate professor job at an institute. You have seven years, Chris, to do what? To get tenure. And what is tenure? Tenure is like going back 2000, a thousand years, medieval times, where once you get tenure, you never ever have to even show up to work. You get paid. Okay. It's like the old priesthood. Okay. So, so in seven years, you have to prove to your peers that you're a great scientist, okay, or a great academician. So how do you do that? Two things you got to do. So let's, first of all, you have to take a specialty. So let's say you're going to say that I'm the greatest guy in understanding aardvarks and avocados. I don't know. Some, I'm making up some field, okay? And so in seven years, you have to publish a bunch of papers in that field. And then you got to find all the other experts in aardvarks and avocados, you know, to when so you get, after seven years, you come up for a review in front of your entire university. And all the other world leaders in Ardvox from Avocado Science have to say Chris is the best guy. And, and they have to write you a reference letter. So in seven years, you have to build your reputation in that field among your peers, like you're e equal to them, right? And then then you get tenure. Now, it gets even more interesting. So not only do you have to, so in order to get that that great recommendation in those seven years, you have to publish papers. So let's say you publish a thousand papers. You ever heard publish or perish? So you got to publish a lot of papers, but then that doesn't matter if you publish a thousand papers, your peers, when they write a paper on aardvarks and avocados have to cite you, you know, when they're writing their paper, they have to say, Oh yeah. And, and, and blah, blah, blah. You know, Dr. McDonald that wrote a paper about aardvarks and McDonald's that's called a citation. You know, Wikipedia, they do citations. Right. So, so not only do you have to have X number of papers, you have to have citations. So they say, okay, Chris not only wrote a thousand papers, but he's got 70,000 citations, which means other people refer to his work, which means he must be doing something great because everyone refers to his work. Okay. 
So how do you get citations, Chris? You got to go either do a lot of networking. You got to go to all the cocktail parties. You got to show up, but it's, it's being a sales. You got to say, hey, can you cite my paper, right? And when, when I review your paper, I may write to you, hey, Chris, can you cite my paper, okay? So you have all this thing going on, self-citations, right? So here's where it gets interesting. Let's say someone comes up with a brand new theory about aardvarks and avocados. Like avocados don't like, or aardvarks don't like avocados. Let's say up until then, the theory was every aardvark liked an avocado. And you found out that was actually not true, right? You, you did some scientific study. And you wanted to, and, and you actually had all the data and all the science. Well, now you got all these scientists who have, who are the, at the top of the aardvark avocado expertise, convinced that aardvarks love avocados, but you have done this brilliant science, innovative science, okay? Showing it's not true. And you're just a first year professor. Well, what do you do? Are you gonna publish that paper, right? Because if you do, you may get completely shunned by all your peers. You will never ever get tenure. So what do these guys do? They shut the hell up. They don't say anything unless they have courage, right? So this is what's happened with academia, right? Unless they have courage. Um, so what's happened with academia is because of the self-referential model of peer review, you have basically created a bunch of lemmings, mediocre lemmings. Did you know Einstein did not publish one paper peer reviewed? So whenever they say, oh, we need to look at the peer reviewed papers. The last, I think when it was one of his last papers, Einstein sent it for review, uh, sent it to publication. And they said, oh, Dr. Einstein, we have to send it out for review. And he goes, what are you talking about for review? And he wrote back, he go, basically he was saying, how can you review new science when your peers want to keep things the old way? You see, they're never going to want to let any new guy come in. So that's why science is the way it is right now. And most of science is something um, called reductionist. What does reductionist mean? It's a story, and I teach this in my course. By the way, everyone listening, you got to tell people to, we're building our platform independent of big tech, independent of any, everyone. We're building it bottoms up. Um, you know, we have our own data center, you know, because of the uh, people supporting us, we just bought two new servers. Uh, but everything we do, it's our own software. We write everything, Chris. So, uh, I just, so everyone should go to vashiva.com slash join, and they can support it. And our view is when people support us, I give them education. That's my great-grandfather's view. Education is ultimately the way out of suffering. But this knowledge is what people need to understand. We need a system science revolution. So the opposite of systems approach is what we do today. It's called reductionism. So what is reductionism? You have a big elephant. It's a story of the blind man looking at the elephant. You know, I've shared the story many times, and I'll keep pounding away until people get this. The king invites six blind men to touch an elephant. And the guy touches a tail, thinks it's a rope. The guy touches a tusk, thinks it's a spear. The guy bumps into the, the feet, thinks it's a um, it's an oak tree and so on, right? None of them sees the elephant. And that's what science incentivizes. So if cancer, this very complex thing, they got a guy doing a little piece of it over here and a guy doing a little piece of it over here and a guy. So if you look at the immune system, the immune system is like a beautiful orchestra. It's like many, many things interconnected. That's a systems approach. And you know, in November of 2019, I was invited to all the sensors out there, if you dare censor this, I, you know, I'm considered one of the leading guys on the immune system 
The National Science Foundation was the number one scientific technology institution in the world invited me, not just invited me, but to give the prestige lecture at the National Science Foundation because, and I gave, proceeded to give this systems view of the immune system. It's not just the, uh, it's not just the, it's not just, you know, the innate system. It's not just the adaptive, it's the interferons, it's our gut back. I mean, it's a very complex, it's like a beautiful orchestra, but they do a reductionism like the blind man, antibodies, 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 antibodies. They just want to focus on the tail of the elephant. Okay, we got to tug the tail. We got to tug the tail, okay? Yeah, the tail is important, okay? Keeps the flies off the elephant, but it's not the whole elephant. We have thousands of genes that get upregulated when, you know, we're exposed to things, right? We have the interferon system. We have the, 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 the microbiome in the gut, which we don't even know how it works. And we've now found that the 5%, the genes that we know as genes, that's only 5% of the DNA. The other 95%, we don't even know what it is. Now they're saying we need to redefine the definition of a gene to not just be protein coding things. So what I'm saying is we don't know so much. And yet we have a guy like a Fauci, a guy like a Bricks, who are actually very mediocre scientists. They're politicians, okay? That's how he survived since Reagan onward. He's a politician. He's a He tries to be a Hollywood guy, right? And he, he probably spends, I bet you if you looked at Fauci's calendar in a day, I guarantee he probably 90% of the time hanging around, drinking wine. I don't think he does any science, okay? But he is, he's like that little pune in the bureaucracy. He knows everyone. So you better not screw with him because he'll destroy your career, okay? So all these cowardly academics, be it at MIT, Harvard, et cetera, they're the real cowards. They're not gonna say anything. And that's why we cannot depend on the existing scientific institutions. That's why the problem they have with someone like me is I actually got all those degrees from MIT. You know, I came to MIT with enough uh, credits to graduate in two years. Okay. So I didn't need MIT, Chris. MIT needed someone like me. And that's took me many years to realize that they find the brightest kids in high school and they put the MIT label on them because they need guys like us to perpetuate their brand. Right. But the interesting thing is, you know, I got multiple degrees in engineering, my PhD is in a field called biological engineering, which is, this is what this whole field is about. So I find myself in an interesting position that, um, uh, that, uh, you know, I never sold out. Why? Because I remembered where I came from. You know, I, I came from my grandparents who had nothing. I came from working class people in New Jersey. And that's the problem they have with someone like me, a serious problem, because I got all their degrees, I got all their awards, I still continue creating, I still continue to do real science, but I will not allow them to, you know, uh, push their motives of power, profit and control um, against working people who are my people, you know? And this is why we need to recognize in the last four years that you cannot rely on billionaires. You can't. You know, Trump did not lock up Hillary. I'm sorry, he didn't do it. I supported him, it was a great slogan. It got, because the elites know that the working people in this country are pissed off. The elites know the working people are figuring out they're being used since probably about 1971, okay? 1940 to 71, the American pie grew, but starting in 71, the union sold out the working people, right? They work hand in hand. So they know the working people are angry. So they have marketers, Chris who work all day to figure out slogans, how to manipulate work. 
So first they use Obama. A lot of Trumpers voted for Obama if you talk to them. A black guy, he was going to help the working people. Then Bernie. Well, by the time 2016 came, and this is my view on this, and I think the data shows this, the elites had to do a great reset because their economy was built on stealing and cheating and lying and just printing money starting in 2008 when they did quantitative easing. And, and they've been keeping the kibosh on an interest rate, which should be 6 to 8%. So my view is, in retrospect, after I understood that the voting systems in this country are selections, not elections. So my position is even Trump was selected. Even though I supported him, I never voted in my life, Chris, until Trump, because I liked him hitting hard the anti-establishment. But that was his shtick. Okay, it's WWF. But the day he got into office, he did nothing against Hillary. His whole campaign was lock her up. And then he brought in Jared Kushner and Ivanka, senior advisors. Jared's now striking for himself $100, $500 million deals in, uh, you know, in Israel. You know, he his company Cadre took in $230 million from a Soros fund. So these people are not working people. I don't care what they say. I don't care if they say make America great, work for blue collar workers. No, you're not. Because at the end of the day, you didn't go at the heart of the issues. You didn't bring Trumpers in. Trump wasn't Trump, in my view. <laughs> Trump talked Trump, but Trump didn't walk the walk of Trump. Yeah. And that's why the only way forward, if we need to learn from these four years, it's not going to be Trump on the right. It's not going to be Bernie. It's not going to be a patriot party. It's going to be the American working people like they did in the late 1800s and the 1900s organizing bottoms up. And that's why they need to Trump in office in 2016. This is my analysis because they knew they had to do a great reset. If you take a systems approach, the Indian working class doesn't have weapons. The Chinese working class are just slaves. The Australian working class has been disarmed. The only force that can be a force against globalism and imperialism right now in the world today is the American working class. They are more armed to the teeth than all the armies of the world. Well, do you think they could have pulled off this great reset with Hillary in office? Because yeah. every conservative Republican or Republican, forget, I don't even want to use the word Republican, conservative, hardworking American would have said, what are you talking about? There could have been a revolution in this country. They needed a Trump. They needed a white guy to say, oh, the plan, plan, the plan is coming. And we and we were all placated for four years. That's what we need. It's a hard pill to swallow. It's not a blue pill. It's not a red pill. I'm giving you the black pill, okay, or the brown pill, whatever you want to take it. But when you take a systems approach, what we come to understand is that we have to go beyond left or right. We have to go to the people that are us which are the working people. So anyway, uh, Chris, I got a video that I don't know if I can play here. Uh, can I share a video? Sure, go ahead, go ahead, play the video, absolutely. Hold on, let me, uh, I think, let me see if I can do this. Um, yeah, I'm gonna play it here, Chris. I don't think I could share it over here, uh, but I think you can hear, uh, hold on. Chris, can you, on your screen, Oh, actually, I, I think I can do it here. Hold on. I need you to allow me to share, Chris. Right, let me do that for you. Just a second. Okay, so everyone, I'm going to... So basically, I'm talking with Chris um, uh, uh, from, Tennessee, uh, from Tennessee. We're doing a talk about why we need a system science revolution. And all of you listening, understand that, you know, the innovation that I've created beyond the invention of email right now is the platform at VHU for truth, freedom, and health. And all of you who really want to really change your lives um, must recognize 
that there is, you have to start with a completely different approach to education. So here, here we go, Chris, I'll put this on. Yes. So I'm gonna go to, um, I think, yeah, here I go. So I'm gonna go, if people go to vashiva.com, I'm gonna share this here. If people wanna go to vashiva.com and you go to, by the way, if you go right to that website, you'll find that on that website is a capability where on the top right, you can click join Dr. Shiva, okay? And this is our platform. And when you, when you click on, uh, on the website, okay, there is, it'll take you to a page where um, the page says, you know, welcome to Dr. Sh uh, VA Shiva, uh, uh, the revolutionary platform being developed by Dr. Shiva, the man who invented email. This platform provides foundational educational curricula and innovative tools so you can be a force to deliver real solutions to affect truth, freedom, and health. And the sister URL is vashiva.com slash warrior. And what we and 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 so what we're educating is we're sort of educating truth, freedom, and health warriors. That's not sort of, that's what we are. And Chris, I think you can see this, right? Okay, I yeah. can. And yes. and here, actually, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna stop the share. I gotta when I share the screen, I gotta hit the audio so you your viewers can hear the audio there. Okay. And there's a video I put together, it takes a couple minutes. Let me play it for everyone, but it'll give you an idea of what we're building. But on the Warrior website, truthvashiva.com slash warrior, anyone who gives us support, Chris, because we're plowing all that, they, they will understand this diagram in a three-hour course. It teaches them systems theory. Then they get access to tools. They get access to a whole portal I've created. They get access to use those same principles to understand how their body is a system. They can actually figure out what are the right food supplements for them, Chris. But then they get access to the textbook. They get access to a number of books. But this is the educational piece. But not only that, Chris, we've also created a platform. And I'll, I'll, what I, let me play the video, okay, uh, where people can actually build community. So here we go. We have allowed our country to be taken over from within. And the end goal is you will have a homogenized world where we will become slaves. Because there is a condition among the elites that really thinks they're better than you deep down inside them, that you don't deserve the freedoms you have. They don't. This reality is what people need to wake up to. And we need to all unite working people. There's only one movement that can do that. And that is the movement that we started creating here in Massachusetts, the movement for truth, freedom, and health. But I've been a student of politics since I was a four-year-old kid setting revolutionary movements, left wing, right wing. There's a physics, there's a nuclear science to destroying the establishment. To build a bridge, you need to understand Newton's equation. You need to understand the laws of gravity. You need to understand Poisson's ratio. There is a way to build a revolution. And that's why I put this together. My goal is to train a army of truth, freedom, and health leaders. We don't need followers like social media. We need leaders, but they, they need training because the educational system does not teach them history, nothing. So in three hours, that's what I've started doing. That's the solution. We got to train people first with understanding what a system is. The second is understanding the interconnection between truth, freedom, and health. Freedom is the ability to move freely, communicate freely, right? Talk freely. Without freedom, you cannot convert ideas, hypothesis into truth, which is science. And without freedom, you can't really get to truth. And without truth, you make up fake problems and fake solutions, which means you destroy our health. And without health, which is the infrastructure of us and our body, you can't fight for freedom. Third concept is it has to be bottoms up, working people, people who work united. And what the right wing has done is whenever you say working people unite, that must be communist. 
Meanwhile, they've let the Democrats run unions, which suppress workers. Completely corrupt. But when you look at the arc of American history, it's been when working people came up. We need to go local. Every solution I'm coming up with is a part of this movement. We're giving the science, which is the truth, and then we tell people what they can do on the ground. Like with election fraud, you don't need to wait for some lawyer. Our goal is to train people. They have to go local, to go local, to go local. Fight locally. Forget lawyers, forget politicians, forget celebrities. You've got to learn politics. And there is a science to it. They lock us down, we should be ready to shut them down. And the fourth part of this principle is a not so obvious establishment. So when you look at a system, there's always something that disturbs you from getting to your goal. But the biggest disturbance is a not so obvious establishment, which are those people who claim they're for you on the left and the right. The Al Sharptons who tell black people I'm for you. The Tucker Carlson's. Do you think any true anti-establishment person will ever be on Fox or CNN? I don't think so. They both mislead working people back into the establishment. Without this solid understanding of political physics and theory, you're screwed. You're going to follow on the left wing, Bernie Sanders. Oh, he said something. Or Robert Kennedy. Scumbags. Or you're going to follow, you know, some right wing talk show host. They're not going to lead us to liberation. It's us. And that political physics, it's a nuclear science of change. Bottoms up. We have to organize to understand that there is people who talk a good game and then look at what they actually do, left and right. I'm sorry, Sean Hannity may say some good things, but I don't see the urgency in his voice to get something done. And it can only come when you weaponize yourself with the right knowledge. You need to be able to identify a rat. You know, Christ didn't go after the Romans, right? It was the Pharisees and the Sadducees who screwed him up. His own quote-unquote people. And that's where we're at. So these four concepts I've built into a curriculum. People can go to bashiva.com, and it's an educational program. We need to train people in political theory. You need to have physics, and I've created that curriculum. People need to get educated. We need to get educated fast. And within a half an hour, an hour, I can teach people. Two years of MIT control systems, I teach people those concepts. Then I apply it. Anyone can understand it. And then you say, oh, I got to build a bottoms-up movement. They have to get politically astute, and then they have to go locally and act, not sit there on social media. They have to act locally, defy locally, do civil obedience locally, but with knowledge on how to build a movement. And the Senate campaign's expanded to the movement for truth, freedom, and health, and they can find it on V as in Victor, A, Shiva, V-A-Shiva.com, so people can sign in, they can get access to a bunch of videos. If they want to take a course to become a truth, freedom, and health leader, I offer a full scholarship there. But we want people to make a commitment that they'll study, that they'll get certified, that they'll go do activities on the ground. So go to VA Shiva, Victory America Shiva, VAShiva.com. Anyway, Chris, I hope that helped understand, you know, the, the bigger way that we get there. So, so the goal is not to just whine, Chris. There's an actual very clear plan that I have. I'm an engineer. You know, it's one thing, um, you know, doing the science, right? It's another thing actually putting engineers. What's cool is engineers take scientific knowledge and we put it into action. We build things. So that's what we're doing here. The goal is to build a movement. And the only way we're going to build a movement is to, first of all, recognize the people who create movements are people. <laughs> and and so everything we're doing on every level is on the platform. People come in, they get all the knowledge. I personally teach them for three hours. 
every Monday. It's a big commitment of my time, but I enjoy doing it. And I learn as I teach. Teaching is a great way to learn. You learn deeper. And then we've created on the platform tools. They get the books. They also get a forum, independent of big tech. They can interact with people. There's a Facebook equivalent. So, so our truth, freedom, and health warriors can build community. Because once people learn this knowledge, their consciousness goes from a kindergartner up to like a PhD level in understanding, wow, you know? And so they're gonna need connections with others. And then the third thing is we're actually giving people tools what they can do locally, like what they can do on the elect clean, how, how they can affect clean elections, how they can educate people on the real issue with masks. So I hope that was helpful, Chris. It was very helpful, Doctor, and I hope we can get you back on. I've, I've got a million questions on our time drive-ons today, but yeah. I do have one quick one as we leave the show here. Um, the, um, your video was very telling. Um, I think that the right uh, is more dangerous sometimes than the left because uh, what I mean by that, and again, I, don't, I hate to use the word right and left like you do. I think the worker is... I think of everything, anything I've taken away from the show today, and, and, I've, and I've always felt it, that you just verbalized it beautifully today. The people that have suffered in this country, the absolute worst, are the working class people. Yeah. The normal person out there that just is out there to support their family, work hard, get rewarded for their job. Because, look, we don't work for free in this country. You, you earn a wage to pay your bills. To, to build a living for America that and your family and that's just normal that's that's what we call life but it seems that somewhere along this journey we have literally become slaves to this establishment and I just think that the mud the waters are so muddy that the general populace out here it is hard to discern many times who's fighting for us and who's not fighting for us and and again we can recognize the Bernie Sanders we can recognize the Hillary Clinton. We can recognize Elizabeth Warren. We can recognize Al Sharpton. We can't recognize Tucker Carlson and Sean. And I felt somewhat what you verbalized. See, I've always said that. That look, these guys, they're, they're great. I, you know, I listen to them, but it's the same rhetoric recycled over and over. If you go back and pull, I guarantee if you pulled shows going back three, four years ago. They're saying the exact same thing now that they were then, and nothing has changed. Yeah, it's basically they're script writers. And if you look at the Trump presidency, look, again, I supported Trump, gave him money, was there, you know, did all the, by the way, we did all the election analysis. We didn't get paid a penny. The RNC and the Trump campaign raised 300 million, okay? Our guys are the ones who did the Arizona analysis. So we have a lot of gravitas in what we did. So it's not like we're anti-Trumpers. But what I can tell you is, that at the end of the day, it's WWF wrestling. And and and, and the, the thing I want to leave everyone with, I, I've done this drawing. You know, one of the things someone just wrote, oh, you know, you keep bringing up the elephant example. You know, sometimes it gets boring. Well, you know what? Until you understand these are hard. Gravity may be boring. Well, you know, it's a reality. Okay. And you have to study gravity and you have to understand it. Otherwise, you're going to jump out of the building and you're going to kill yourself. And that's what we're doing today. This is why people have to recognize that they have a decision to make. Are they gonna do the same old thing over and over again, which is following the left and right? And the good thing about, in many ways, the good thing about the last four years, I think we needed to go, go through this for people to recognize, okay, you have the wing, you have the eagle, the head is the establishment, one shoulder is the obvious establishment of the McConnells and the Romneys, the McCains, the other shoulder is the obvious establishment of the Democrats, 
the Bidens and the Obamas, et cetera. But the wings are the not so obvious establishment. So, you know, people figured that out with Bernie and Tulsi Gabbard. They talk a good game. At the end of the day, they all bow down to Hillary and Joe Biden. That's how the wings flap back at the shoulder, right? Talking some nonsense or DNC. That's just to rile up the base as though they are a real opposite, fake opposition. And that's what Trump and Cruz and Hawley do, right? At the end of the day, they'll kissy poo with McConnell and, you know, break bread with whoever it is, right? Because they do that because they need those, the not so obvious establishment and the establishment. It's easy for people to see the obvious establishment. And this is why our course is so important because when you study system science, you will see this is called a disturbance. Anyway, Chris, I got to take this other thing, but it was a pleasure. Thank you very much and best to you and your... Okay. Be well. Thank you. Be well. Bye-bye. So everyone out there, I hope this is valuable, but I can't overemphasize. It's really up to you. Do you want to continue to be fooled? Do you want to be in the kindergartner of a left-right narrative or do you want to grow up? And the good news is there's some grown-up knowledge for you here. Go to vashiva.com slash join. Do it for yourself. Do it for your family. Support this movement. If you gave money to all these politicians, the hundreds of millions of billions that these guys took in, you know, this movement is the only force that can win. And I can say that with emphatic uh, confidence because science doesn't lie. The math doesn't lie. There is a gravity. There is a fundamental physics to changing the world. And those those physical principles are invariant, whether in your body or anything around them, around you. And that's called system science. So study it. Be part of this movement, but do it for yourself. So support the movement. Go to vashiva.com slash warrior, vashiva.com slash join. And I look forward to seeing you next Monday in the uh, private group class I run. We had about 140 people on this past Monday. Be well. Thank you.